Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gaussian's crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for Christmas Eve midnight. It comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read that in the King James Version. We, we, we stick with the King James for at least Luke 2, so uh, for Christmas Eve. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. All right. Uh, Context-wise, we know where this comes in terms of uh, Luke's gospel. You know, after all of the uh, uh, promises uh, to Mary and to Elizabeth and uh, to uh, Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist. Uh, but in terms of like the context liturgically, or even within the lectionary, you know, we're we're just coming off of all of the stuff with John the Baptist on, uh, you know, being a prophetic man. Uh, he's not a man of soft clothing, but uh, but he understands what his mission is, and he doesn't shrink back from it. Um, 
is there something to how even God doesn't shrink back from his mission and what he set out to do from the foundation of the world that he too is now becoming man um, in kind of the same way that Jesus speaks of John the Baptist? Well, to be sure, there's a connection with the Annunciations, right? Um, yeah. So if you look at the Annunciations, John is the is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament annunciations where uh, barren women receive sons that are to be you know prophets or warriors or whatever, and then you know this this kind of culmination of all annunciations with what's given to Mary. So, I mean, to be sure that John is also a type of Christ, you know, in his role as prophet, and uh, you know, as one who comes out of the barren and. And, and so forth. So I'm not sure if that's what you were meaning or. Well, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, you've got this focus, uh, you know, we discussed in Advent three, and then, you know, we get an Advent four of, you know, John being, being the man for that time. Right. Um, yeah. Is, is, is this is Christmas Eve, you know, as opposed to just God becoming flesh, but that he is a man, um, is there anything to that? I mean, I suppose there is, but it, it does seem to me that the emphasis in the propers and even in, in Luke uh, 2 here is on the divinity, um, the way that the angels respond and so forth. I think on Christmas Day, there's a little bit more of the, a little bit more of the incarnational idea, and mm-hmm. especially with the whole, you know, the, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Whereas here, yeah. this is a, a relatively happy scene. I mean, I, I mean, there's hints of the darkness. You know, the, the, he's rejected. You know, by the people of Bethlehem, and there's no place for him to be born, and he's poor. I mean, you know, the, uh, there's all that going on. But but the real emphasis, I think, is upon you know those who do receive him: Mary, mm-hmm. Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, right? And mm-hmm. they have slightly different responses to him, but all of them, I I think, you know, we would say are happy or positive responses. So it seems like on in my estimation, Christmas Eve emphasis contextually within you know the end of Advent and then Christmas Day is actually more upon the divinity uh, than the humanity. Though yeah. I mean, I suppose you could make the same application that he's the right God for this time, and also that his will is iron, right? He's he's not backing down. He's he's uh, he's fully committed in fulfilling his promises and fulfilling his role in history and doing what he said he would do. Right. So I was taking a look at uh, Lindemann again, Fred Lindemann, and uh, <laughs> he talks about how uh, you know one avenue you could go uh, is you know the light coming in the world dispelling the darkness. Though he says this is more Christmas yeah. morning, um, and then he says, however, the great thought of the early service is announced in the opening sentence of the introit and repeated in the gradual, the manhood was taken into God. So uh, the angel declared that the babe is Christ the Lord. Uh, In the epistle, the child born of the virgin is called mighty God, everlasting father. Uh, So this would suggest a sermon on the union of the two natures in Christ. Uh, is Is this kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, because the always when we talk about that, right? The emphasis is right. The two natures aren't equal, so so that the kind of divinity thing is the 
the sort of emphasis. And I mean, right, the light shining in the darkness is not a reference to his humanity. I mean, it's not apart from his humanity, but the emphasis is upon, right, the salvation that he's bringing, the power that he has. Yeah, especially, I, I mean, I think that the that the gospel or that this idea of Christmas Eve being focused on the divinity uh, is really um, becomes clear when you look at the propers outside of Luke 2 and, mm. you know, how they stand in relation to Luke 2. I, okay. The other thing is, I think you have, you, you do have a kind of gradual intensification. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have the three communion services for Christmas, uh, you know, like the Roman church does uh, probably maybe Zion and Detroit might do it, but they're probably the only ones. So we just usually have really the Christmas midnight, whatever time we do it, which is Luke two and then Christmas day, which is John one. But th- there, there was this kind of idea, or if you did the vigil of Christmas, you, you do get this kind of intensification that comes about, you know, starting with the, the uh, announcement to Joseph and, you know, Isaiah seven and then, uh, you know, this kind of how Joseph is the man who is going mm-hmm. to, to suffer this and endure this and be faithful, right, and make sure all this happens. And that from Matthew, and then in Luke, you know, so then at midnight, then you get, or whenever it is, right, then you get Luke 2, and you see Joseph doing it in a way, because he takes them to Bethlehem. And that's mm-hmm. under his, you know, patriarchy there, that that's why they're there in the city of David. But there is this kind of intensification that, with this joy, right? The, the, the good reaction of the shepherds and, and the like. And then on Christmas Day, I really think that's the, the high point theologically um, and a kind of more sober celebration as well, right? Uh, that that uh, now we're really kind of thinking very deeply and profoundly about what it means that God has become man and, and what he's headed for. So I, I think that it's very helpful, even if you just have the two, you know, I think it's very helpful to see Christmas Eve's theme as being defined mostly by joy and a kind of simplicity. Um, this isn't time to get into gruesome details about the crucifixion, right? There, mm. Again, there's hardship that is hinted at, but he's received by, you know, these this cast of characters mostly. It, it's appropriate to be filled with reverence, with awe, I mean, I don't mean there's nothing profound here, but I think at least in terms of preaching, this is what we ought to try to reflect. And this isn't the time really for cleverness or um, kind of deep thoughts or ambiguity. This is the time to, I mean, this is, I I like the idea even though of this being kind of a children's service. Mm. And I I mean, so it's like- What do you mean by that? Christmas Day- well, what I mean is that, you know, this is the way that I think is helpful to sort of envision is to imagine your sermon on Christmas Eve is about simplicity, clarity in expressing the great joy that we have a Savior and that God has kept his promises. And mm. it's a time to sort of speak to the people as children. And yeah. then on Christmas Day, I think it's time to do some actual contemplation Right. Okay. So, I mean, not that they're mutually exclusive, but, and I, I'm, I'm uh, basing that uh, largely on really the preaching of Walther and Luther, who both really kind of do that. That mm-hmm. that Christmas Eve is just this, ex, you know, exorbitant, luxurious joy that's almost unqualified, 
and and different also. I'm very different in its character and its feel than the joy at the Easter Vigil. Mm. Um, you know, what I think the, it is a much and that joy. Uh, the joy at the Easter Vigil is the is the joy after the cross, right? So, I mean, we've come through this kind of horror, this nightmare. Uh, in a way, right? And now see its purpose at the vigil and we see the victory that God has won. And so that's a different, it's just tempered in a different way. It's more mature. Um, It's also, there's been like a bonding that's gone on through the suffering of Lent and Holy Week that we can sort of talk about these things and see these things on the other side. Whereas again, I think Christmas has this, at least Christmas Eve, particularly with the Luke 2, I think, has more of this. I, I, child likes the, the only way I can think to express it. Um, mm-hmm. Innocent, that's not a good word. But I don't know. Bo- yeah. Both of Walter's big Christmas Eve sermons are just, it, it's, it's amazing how exuberant he is about just, you know, this is the greatest thing, you know, and the greatest happiness. And yeah. it's this kind of wonderful thing. You know, he doesn't say anything in those sermons that's, really very theologically insightful. Um, I mean, not that they're not theological, but they're not, he's just restating what we already know in a very excited, emotional, um, appropriate way. And I I think that's a good model. So Christmas Eve is more about delighting in that. And Christmas Day is kind of more about the, the, the pondering of what now, what now, what does this mean? Yeah. I think so. I, and I mean, I, I think so. I kind of think of, and I mean, it does kind of work out this way in our practice, right? That I mean, Christmas Eve is when the delinquent members come and they don't, they don't, they're not catechized very well. They don't know much, uh, mm-hmm. but we're glad they're there, you know, and we want, and we're, we're thrilled they're there and we want them to hear this message and we want them to, to feel this joy. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that it's going to, that the Holy Spirit's going to work through this and spark in them a recommitment to things and the like. Uh, but we kind of know that, you know, based on past <laughs> performance, there, there's kind of a sense in which on, on Christmas Day, you're going to get sort of the more serious Christians. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I know that's, we're, we're maybe not supposed to admit that out loud, but I think, I mean, it's just the reality yeah. kind of everywhere. Uh, you know, the, the kind of people that are willing to make some sacrifices and whose Christmas holiday is not defined primarily, well, at least not as fully by family and feasting, right? Mm-hmm. And gifts. No, that makes sense. So I, I'm just um, saying, lean into it is what I'm saying. Lean into it. Don't, don't, this isn't, I don't think this is the time to rebuke those delinquent members. Yeah, don't, even, don't, on Christmas not Eve. Even a, not even at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I well, think I, I, will, I will say well, I, that I, when I have, it hasn't always gone well. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I mean, that's that doesn't mean that rebukes almost never do go well. I mean, the flesh, <laughs> the flesh doesn't like them. So I don't know when when we would rebuke the delinquent members and have it go well. I mean, yeah. But anyway, I I don't know. You you could some, but I'd be careful. I just don't think that it fits quite the spirit of the of the day, and I would just say lean into it. Um, and this isn't the only time you're going to talk to these people, and I don't think you should act like it is, even if it is. So even if they only come on Christmas Eve, then ignore them. 
because don't let them ruin this, you know? Yeah. There's a time, it's sort of like, it's sort of like rock music. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think rock music has its place. Some people might disagree with that. I think rock music can do a very good job of, of expressing exuberant, erotic kind of, you know, joy. I mean, maybe joy is not the right word, but, but uh, you know, there, I think there is a, there is a place where this can be appropriate, you know, not in church, but this is something to, to be expressed. Uh, if that's all you have for music, you, you're very shallow musically, yeah. right? And and it's because you don't you don't think there's anything else to be expressed by music. Mm -hmm. But but at the same time, I mean, it has its place. Or maybe that's a uh, I should have used instead. It would have been more liturgically correct. I think there is a place for timpani. How's that? Yeah. You know, um, timpani can well, be easily overused and trumpets, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. But this is what Christmas Eve is the time for that. So yeah, I, the fact that I, some people only come for that. Yeah. I, I think that your point is well taken because Lindemann also talks about, you know, there are a lot of people who don't celebrate the Holy Communion on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Or they'll just do one or the other because they recognize that there'll be visitors or people who only come once a year or whatever the case is, and you know don't want to uh, 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 offend them or anything. And he said, "Look, these feasts are for Christians. These feasts yeah. are for the faithful. Uh, so you have to have the Lord's Supper." And I think you could build out from that and say. Who is your primary audience? Your primary audience isn't the, the 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 couple time of years. It's the faithful, and so you want yeah. to preach to them the message that you want them to hear. Yeah, that's one of my favorite sections in that whole set. Um, I think that's he does a marvelous job of uh, admonishing us to not you know be ashamed or embarrassed about having holy communion and even about closed communion. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that uh, I think that's right. So so recognize that you know, you know, we're not going to make joy to the world the hymn of the day uh, because we have Luther's hymn. But I think joy to the world is an appropriate hymn to kind of get the sense of this and to let the people mm -hmm. have it, even though it's not a Lutheran hymn. You know, yeah. maybe that's the yeah. So let's talk about the. Uh, I want to talk about some of these other propers because. Okay. I think, uh, I mean, we've talked, I mean, we're, all of our listeners are very intimate with the Luke 2 gospel, I suspect. And we've talked about it quite a bit before, but I don't know that we've ever looked very deeply at, for example, the intro it, which, which you brought up a couple of weeks ago. Um, I can't remember mm -hmm. why, uh, but uh, it sparked me and I remembered it this morning. So I did finally look that up. It's from Wisdom chapter 18. Um, which is in the Apocrypha, and the way that we're used to hearing it, um, here's the antiphon. When all was still and it was midnight, thine almighty word descended from the royal throne, and then it goes into Psalm 2, and then, of course, comes back to that. So that's, uh, that's Wisdom chapter 18, 14 to 15, and it's in the context. It's really great. I'd forgotten about this. Uh, chapter 18 is about the Passover, and the, mm. the almighty word that's coming down is the word that destroys the firstborn of the Egyptians. So it's Ooh. really great. Uh, it's, yeah, I know. So I'm going gonna, gonna to start reading here in verse uh, 12. So it's, the whole chapter is sort of helpful here. But uh, 
uh, anyway, to, 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 so to these, where is this? Anyway, he's talking about his wrath, and then he says, "There's the corpse is too many to count for the living, this would be of the Egyptians, were not sufficient even to bury them, since in one instant their most valued children had been destroyed, right, their firstborn. For though they had disbelieved everything because of their magic arts, yet when their firstborn were destroyed, they acknowledged thy people to be God's son. And then verse 14, For while gentle silence enveloped all things, and night in its swift course was now half gone, thy all-powerful word leaped from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed, a stern warrior, carrying the sharp sword of thy authentic command, and stood and filled all things with death, and touched heaven while standing on the earth. (laughs) Isn't that something? I mean, you've got the incarnation there, but you've got this putting this. And then it goes on. Then at once apparitions and dreadful dreams greatly troubled them and unexpected fears assails, assailed them. And one here and another there hurled down half dead, made known why they were dying for the dreams which disturbed them, forewarned them of this and, and on and on. So it's, it's really, mm-hmm. it's really powerful. And uh, I mean, I mean, this doesn't quite go with this but but there is, I think, kind of in a sense, then hidden in the mm-hmm. in these propers, again, it, it's emphasis upon the divinity. But you know that he's coming. This is a rescue operation, mm-hmm. um, and you know he's he's a, coming it's attack almost. Yeah, he's it's born like, behind enemy like, lines. It's like Kristallnacht, uh, <laughs> only good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> only good. Yeah, let's not use that as a comparison. <laughs> the uh, but yeah, it it is this. Uh, well, it's the Passover, right? These Egyptians yeah. are, are are finally being being shown. And I was reading. Oh, who was it? I can't remember. Uh, somebody was talking about this. Uh, some you know Luther or somebody, and was saying that uh, here at the Passover, right? They didn't want the people to leave. <laughs> now they beg them to leave. Right. Uh, yes. So anyway, that's uh, that, and then it goes into Psalm two, which of course you know has the whole thing about why do the why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the anointed. Uh, so you've really got you know the raging of of Pharaoh and Herod. You know, I think quite explicitly to a lesser degree Caesar Augustus, right? Who is you know making his plans to tax the world. But, he, but they're all pawns, right? And they're mm-hmm. all impotent uh, in the face of Jesus. So, and then you have also, of course, in Psalm uh, uh, 2, right, that I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And uh, you have that marvelous thing where the holy hill of Zion moves outside the city gate. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, is the, the, the new Zion, in a sense, is, is outside the city gate, outside the camp. Uh, Hebrews 13, and is, of course, really Calvary, right, or Golgotha. Yeah. So it's there's really tons there. Yeah. I, I do kind of like the idea of have- the surprise attack, um, kind of <laughs> like the the Aslan is on the move uh, that you yeah. get in, yeah. in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, I was thinking about it like, you know, so here he is, he's, he's like a green beret, you know, inserted behind enemy lines, Mm -hmm. except they know it and they try to get him. right? Herod tries to kill him and fails. Yeah. I mean, there is this, uh, you know, he, this, because the earth is his, right? And it it plays um, right into his hands. Like it plays right into his plan. 
It's like right. this is uh, like you know this is three D chess and they're playing checkers. <laughs> well, I like too this. Uh, I think you know so some of this like hinted at sadness in Luke too. Um, you know, with of course the rejection and the the poverty and, and some of that stuff, but but also I just think even the mention of Bethlehem, right? Um, you know, we, we we always think of course house of bread and the manger and all the Eucharistic stuff and and all of the all of those things, but but also I mean Bethlehem is the place of the holy innocence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and you're going to have that in three days. Mm-hmm. And because we, you know, we're going to have Christmas and then St. Stephen, St. John, or, uh, wait, how's that go? Who is it? Stephen. And then who's on the 27th? What am I forgetting? Uh, is, and then the John, Holy Innocence. Is it John? Why doesn't that sound right to me all of a sudden? I was, there's something about they're all, Stephen is a martyr in will, but not in act. And it's, then the martyrs are, it's mar- are John the, the Apostle. Innocence are, it is the John the Apostle. The 27th is well, John does, the Apostle and Evangelist. Then the innocence, and then the next we get is circumcision. I thought there was something where the one in the middle was both act and will. The, I, the, uh, this holy is the first time I'm are, hearing this. The holy innocents are martyrs by act, but not by will. Stephen is by will, but not by act. But that doesn't work. John's not act and will. Maybe he's neither act. Or, that doesn't make any sense. I don't he's, know. He's not a martyr. I know. I don't know why I thought there was some something there. Uh, hmm. Isn't that like a famous saying? I've never heard it before. It's famous in my mind, but I don't know. I don't not, That's not famous enough for me to know how it goes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So, so that's anyway, a, the, I mean, that would be a, a great, uh, a, a great way to, um, you know, set up Christmas, which is like, you know, the backdrop of Passover. I know. And he's the firstborn, right? Who's going to be yes. sacrificed for all the others. I mean, he's, you just, it's just beautiful. Everything about it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, he's the firstborn to be sacrificed so that the people who believe can be the firstborn of God. That's right. He's the son of David who dies so that the son of peace can live, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, he's this, right? And so that David can be spared. I mean, it's just on and on. You do have the light thing in the collect explicit. You make this most holy night to shine with the brightness of the true light, right? Mm-hmm. We have known the mysteries of that light on earth. We may come to the fullness of his joys in heaven. Then the Old Testament's Isaiah 9, which again has light. <laughs> the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Um, and uh, you, you have the joy is increased and is multiplied as at harvest and also a victory, you again have a battle motif as those who despite, uh, divide the spoils of war. And then slavery language, uh, broken the yoke and the staff and the rod of the oppressor. Mm. And then it's the, and then as in the day of Midian, which you know brings up the judges primarily, and I think mainly Gideon, yeah. though uh, all of them, even even uh, I mean Samson doesn't deal with the Midianites, but uh, with the Philistines, but there is still mention of Midian. He goes, what is it? I can't remember. But anyway, there's that whole thing. And then you get that, for unto us a child is born. You know, and that's really fantastic because that's mm-hmm. this, that ties into the Annunciation idea, mm-hmm. right? That, um, you know, uh, Samson is has an Annunciation. 
he's he's going to be born to be this great thing. And his parents, yeah. you know, don't react that great. But but the other times that you have those sorts of things, whether it's to Sarah or to Hannah, right? There's a recognition that when you have this enunciation, this son, it's always a son, mm-hmm. is being born for this peculiar office that in some way is going to be a deliverer, whether that's as a judge or as a prophet or as a king. But yeah. of course, here it's very much a warrior uh, who's going to bring in spoils, who's going to destroy the enslavers, um, and who's going to give us joy that is multiplied and increased, like as at harvest, even though we didn't do the sowing. Isn't in Samson's Annunciation, the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, doesn't he say his name is wonderful? Yes, he does. That's right. Okay. I forgot about that. Yeah. So you so you have that connection then that so the the one who is wonderful uh is raising up Samson uh and then he comes himself yeah. and and does the job. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and then you get and those titles are those are inter, so you have the government on his shoulders which all the fathers see as a prophecy of the cross and I think they're right that right Pilate puts Pilate puts the cross on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. But then you have those uh, titles, which are, I think, really Trinitarian titles. That, that It's funny, they're not really titles of the second person or of the incarnation exactly, right? Wonderful. Okay, that could be. And you have that tie to Samson, as you say. But then counselor, I mean, that can certainly be applied to Christ. But, you know, traditionally, especially in John's gospel, right? We think of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mighty God. Okay, that could be any of them. Everlasting Father. Right. Um, and then, and then finally, Prince of Peace. I, I, I don't. I'm not trying to divide the, you know, into these into the persons of the Holy Trinity. But I rather think that that here, the Messiah is being described as the Trinity. Mm. Um, well, the work and uh, the opera ad extra are in exactly are right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I, I think that's we don't think that way very much. I mean, no. I don't. I doubt. I mean, you know, I I think here there is a sense in which the incarnation and the atonement, right, this deliverance is being attributed to the entire Holy Trinity, and the second person of the Holy Trinity is not really being being that distinctly pointed out or named. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that all of these names can't be applied directly to Christ, uh, but. It seems like, especially everlasting Father, is a strange way to speak of the of the Son in isolation from the Father. So, mm-hmm. I don't know what you think of that, but I think I think that's I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I've thought that before. Uh, I th- in fact, I think it every year when I hear this read, but I've never preached on this, or mm-hmm. you know, I've never led a Bible study on Isaiah. Yeah, I I'd kind of be afraid to. Uh, it's so long. <laughs> And there's so much. I would. Yeah. I mean, and it, I, who's equal to that task? I mean, it feels like there's a lot there. Uh, but maybe if I would have, I would have thought of this before. I always think about when it's being read, and then forget about it. By okay, then you have the uh, then you have the <laughs> eternity of of his throne being proclaimed. Right of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, which is completely different than all of the kingdoms of earth, which all come to an end, right? And you go back to Psalm 2, that, you know, the heathen the heathen rage and the people yeah. imagine a vain thing. Uh, one of the vain things they imagine is that their 
going to last forever. Uh, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like short wars, right? There is this just incredible foolhardiness of the nations of the earth historically that they go into war thinking this will be quick again and again and again and again. And, you know, other than maybe the six day war, there, there haven't been short wars in the history of men. They're always worse and more complicated mm-hmm. um, and harder to get out of than we think. So in a similar way that we think war is going to be short, we think we're going to live forever. We think our government, you know, is anyway. All right, yeah. so that's Isaiah 9. The gradual is Psalm, uh, two, two verses from Psalm 110, including mm-hmm. the Lord said unto my Lord. So Jesus' uh, proof text for his divinity against the Pharisees, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So, right, again, this emphasis upon divinity and also on victory, military victory mm-hmm. and the uh, subduing of the Gentiles, which which I think we should take in two ways, right? Not, not only the defeat, you know, and the destruction of them, like Herod and the like, but also um, the conversion of the Gentiles also subdues them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, um, what about the Titus? Yeah. So this is the, uh, that, that seems uh, like really rich, you know, yeah. the loving, the goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared. <laughs> Yeah, has appeared to to bring that brings salvation, mm-hmm. right? So the name of Jesus, right? Uh, so the the this is it is this uh, this appearing, right? The grace of God, so that Jesus is the grace of God that brings salvation, and then it's completely po- pointed to uh, sanctification. Yeah, I mean, right? So the grace of God brings salvation. So this has appeared to all men and then teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Uh, I think that's significant here, this present world. This isn't just simply talking about justification and how one mm-hmm. day, you know, the good work in us will be complete and then, you know, sanctification, justification, and how we're already 100%, you know, sober, righteous, and godly. No, this is that we should live this in this present world and then looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, emphasis on divinity, but also then pointing us to the second coming, right? That we're going to, we've been saved for good works, and and part of those good works is looking for the culmination of time and, and the completion. And then who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself, a peculiar people, zealous for good works. So you got, mm-hmm. I mean, it's doctrinally rich with justification and, and seeing sanctification as the purpose of justification. Yeah. So... Um, um, so how, how how so what themes are you going to do? Like what are the major themes? What are the major doctrines that you're going to want to uncover here to to get at that delight and joy? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm really I didn't uh, I didn't make notes in that direction. Um, I I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I think just the maybe we've got to go to the uh, the just the goodness that God sends a deliverer. You know, mm-hmm. to maybe tie it to the Passover. We are a people that are oppressed by the rod of these enslavers, Satan mm-hmm. and his human agents. Uh, 
and our old man and the devil, right? And and yeah. these are right. God has not ignored us. He sees and he hears. He sees us. He hears our cries, and he he sends this rescuer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I think that's the that's the, the it, you've mentioned the Walther heaven is now open sermon. Yeah, uh, I I think the uh, Bernard Saint Bernard sermon. Uh, on, on you know what this birth means is also really great. It's in that long series, like on the Missus Est, the sending. Um, those are good. What I mean, what other sermons could you take well, from the past and kind yeah. of rework uh, to to deliver for the people now to to kind of bring that about? Yeah, I mean, there is another Walther sermon that that one you mentioned is. In English, in the which I it's the only way I'm ex, ex, accessing it. Um, the selected sermons from like 1985 in the new edition of the of Walther's works in the Gospel sermons. There's another Christmas Eve sermon that's also very similar, that different theme, but but also kind of very exuberant and uh, where he just delights in this. And I think you could easily take that and modify it some and just some so. Uh, and it was Ron Feuerhahn had an article, uh, an essay in some book. I can't think of what it was, but the, the essay was on uh, preaching as proclamation, if I remember correctly. Um, mm. And I've always loved this idea. And I think I wouldn't. We don't want to do this every Sunday or even that often. But I think there are times when you know the sermon can actually just demonstrate to the people how to sing, right? How to pray, mm. how to rejoice. And I think that's kind of what Walter does, particularly in that gospel sermons book in this sermon yeah. where he just, and I think that, that, you know, that's, there's a, that's a, that's a, a definitely something you could do. Luther's is famous sermon article, on this. Is that the article like preaching for, not just to the church? That's what it is. That's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You I think it. that's in the liturgical preaching volume. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, preach that's what he, that's what the title preaching for yeah. not just to. Yeah. So his his thesis there is that if I remember correctly that the sermon is also the place where um the preacher is able to give the people the words to say to praise and uh express their joy that you're you are taking on kind of the the perspective of the people to give them the very words and thoughts to put to what's going on in this at this particular moment, right? Yeah, and I, yeah, I. So that's you know, there's a strain of the Reformed Church that does this with the prayer of the church. Um, Hughes Oliphant Olds was a big proponent of this. So you know, the was an important part of the preacher's duty to write a new prayer every week. <laughs> And the prayers were based on the propers. It was like a it was like a sermon. I mean, they really were. That's why. I mean, I think this is a terrible idea. Actually, um, uh, I don't think that the prayers of the church, not not the colic, but the prayer of the church, should be a variable form. Um, mm. But anyway, that's another debate. But the uh, the idea that you would kind of preach a second sermon in the prayers, I find annoying and inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the, but I, I think that what the, but what they're on to is they should just do that in the sermon, right? If it's mm. if, instead of preaching in the prayers, why not preach in your sermon and pray in the prayers? 
And if there's things that you want to say, right? So, uh, so, so anyway, I hear you. He's is that we should preach <laughs> in our sermons and pray in our prayers. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. That's a novel idea. But uh, I like that. You know, that Hughes Oliphant Olds is an interesting guy, and uh, I wish I, I would have loved to have met him. He died about probably ten years ago. I don't. But anyway, it. Sometimes you do see that kind of. I mean, they're explicit in that. That is their according to their tradition and their and their theology. Um, so you know, mm-hmm. okay, that's who they are. They're reformed. They're not. You know, they're not Lutherans. We're not yeah. reformed. We shouldn't do that. I don't think they should do it either. But you know, they do a bunch of stuff like, you know, not have their uh, sacramental theology and even Christology right. So yeah. <laughs> so you were about to say uh, something about Luther and his sermons. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that famous uh, sermon of which probably everybody's read, um, that Luther sermon for Christmas Eve, where in, uh, I think it's in volume 51, whatever the big sermon volume is, and, you know, the first 55 volumes of uh, Luther's works, the American edition, where, he, you know, it's, it's the, the famous kind of line out of there is the thing where he rails against the people who say, that if they would have been in Bethlehem, they would have helped the baby Jesus. But, you know, they're ignoring all the babies around them, you know, mm-hmm. that, that bit, which is great, you know. But, but uh, that sermon is interesting in a couple of ways. Uh, for one thing, uh, I count Luther is so allegorical in that sermon. It's astounding. I think it's 1522. And uh, I counted like 21 allegories where he just takes Luke 2, and it's a, st- I mean, things like, you know, I'm trying to remember now. I, I was going to, I thought of this when you were reading reading the gospel just now, mm-hmm. um, so I didn't look this up again. I have this somewhere. But I remember it's like things like, well, of course this happened at night because, you know, the world's in darkness. Okay, well, that's pretty straightforward. But then he's like, it also happens at night because, of course, the dawn is the gospel and the night is the law. Um, and he just goes on. He comes up with all sorts of things. The reason that the that there's a, a light at the uh, angels, you know, he I, sort of stuff. I did this at South Wisconsin District, and I just I just read through these statements, like twenty of them, twenty one that Luther makes. And you know, there's like three or four of them in there that you're like, this seems like quite a stretch, you know. And yeah. it's hilarious because in the same sermon. In the beginning of the sermon, he makes this statement about how uh, the Holy Spirit does not work in complicated ways, but speaks simple language so that everyone can understand. And that's why sensus literalis est unus, right? And this statement from that sermon is quoted by Serberg in his document to prove that the Bible only has one sense. And there's no allegory unless it's explicit, right? And then you look at the context Mm -hmm. of the statement where Luther says this. Which I admittedly, you know, that's it, it seems to it seems to say, especially out of context, just what Serberg said it said. But then when you start really looking at it and you look at the context, I mean Luther's he he, he just either he doesn't he's I, I think he probably isn't actually cognizant of what he's doing. I think that Luther is and you know, some we you get people get wound up with by the vocabulary. So if you don't wanna if the word allegory is too offensive, I mean he's He's using the scriptures to be parabolic or figurative, right? Where he sees things in the text that are symbolic of theological truths um, that he expounds. 
And maybe he doesn't think those are, when he's doing that, that's allegorizing. Maybe he thinks he's doing something else. Uh, but it's really, it's beautiful anyway. It's fun to read. And I think um, that's, that has a lot of value. Oh, he does a lot with place names too, you know. And so, you know, Bethlehem, of course, because it's the house of bread. But he also makes something out of Judah. I can't remember what it was. And, you know, Praise just stuff Lord. like that. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think that's what it was, though. That was the weird thing. He, I don't know. It's been a while. But but anyway, that's another sermon. That's it's a an important, I think, sermon in the history of Lutheranism, um, significant sermon. And that section in particular, you know, I think could be imitated. And you know, you could you could delight in this text by by showing the consistency that what God does here is not actually strange. That is to say that what God does here, we see reflected in all of the history of Israel so that there's a correspondence, right, between the history of Israel and the details of this text and also uh, reflected also in the second coming and so forth and the way that it all ties together as though Holy Scripture actually has a single author, the Holy Spirit, and it's actually a single narrative theological mm-hmm. document, right? Yeah. And and I think that's a kind of delighting and, and, and taking joy in the text. And I don't, you know, I, I was uh, recently somewhere, oh, is it a Winkle? And we we're talking about some of this stuff. And so the question came up, which I think is an important question and a, and a very astute one, and that is, okay, fine, you know, we, we this is appropriate and, and that we should do more of this and, and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what are the limits, right? How is it abused? How can you go too far? And, uh, you know, I actually don't know. I've been trying to figure this out. And I mean, other than, you know, not following the analogy of faith, that'd be wrong. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, is it possible to go too far? I suppose if, if we started to be frivolous with it, um, you know, and, and just trying to be cute, if we weren't being Christological, if it wasn't, if it wasn't within the analogy of faith. But I think that even if it feels wildly speculative, as long as we're kind of issuing the caveats and we're actually using it to extol Christ and his grace and to drive people to read scripture more deeply and to read the whole of scripture, right? I just don't see how we're really going to abuse this and be wrong. So let's just say, you know, somebody sees in here, uh, oh, this says of the house and lineage of David. Well, you know, house is a homonym for, I don't know, right? Something in Hebrew that, you know, reminds us of the, you know, the, the, the pillar of fire. And of course that's Christ leading them. And so see, blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, let's say somebody, let's say, I mean, I'm just trying to make up something crazy, right? Something just kind of has really no maybe merit actually in any kind of logical or literary sense. And, and yet, you know, what would be the harm of that? Or how would that not actually be useful and helpful if it actually helped people make this connection and recognize that Christ is the pillar of fire, right? Or does that make sense? No, I, I, I'm with you. So anyway, I think, you know, we've been, we've have, we've had a, a very shallow view of scripture and I, we can, I think we can put some of this blame at Walther and Luther. Um, but uh, I think this idea, even in like uh like, you know, Walther's thing, like in the, when he talks about how to write a sermon, which he does not do in law and gospel, but which he does do very explicitly in his pastoral theology, where he, 
so, and he says, well, you know, that like the number one thing is it has to be only the word, you know, the word, the word alone. And, you know, we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but then the problem is, is that we're, we're afraid to say things that the text doesn't say explicitly because we don't know exactly, yeah. you know? Um, and that's, that, that's different than the way the Bible's been read historically. And I think that, you know, we end up being pedantic and that's not mm-hmm. delighting, right? We're looking yeah. at the, we're looking at scripture, you know, we're not looking at the details of scripture with delight. We're looking them, looking at them as a kind of limit and saying, oh, I'm just going to stick to the bare text. And yeah, I, I, it's just not good. The, there's uh Peter Lightheart, you know, he he has, has a oh, lot yeah. on typology, and and I would commend his his works for that. But in in one of his works, he talks about like in your preaching that you get at the will not by commands but by the imagination, and that you need to cultivate preaching to the imagination. The way that you know you see even Saint Paul when he uses analogies and is is saying it's like this and it's like that. You know, he's drawing pictures for them with words to, to yeah. instead of just saying do this and do that. Um and it, it sounds like when we lost the allegorical um or the fourfold sense, uh we've lost some of that imaginative preaching. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that uh you know when in the uh when you look at the uh accounts of the uh, summaries of the law in in the gospels right you shall love the lord your god you have this that in hebrew it is you shall love the lord your god with all your heart mind and or i'm sorry heart soul and strength and then it gets it gets changed in the new testament to heart mind or anyway mind gets added um and sometimes it gets added instead of strength, and sometimes it's just added as a fourth thing. And the word that's translated as mind there is, uh, I can't remember now, uh, no, uh, it's uh, dia no eo, or however you say that, right? So it's the word think or mind with a, with a uh, what, is that an adjective? No, a, a uh, preposition, a preposition on the front of it. Through. <laughs> D. Right. So it means actually imagination. Um, it's the word that's used in the Magnificat uh, about the vain, you know, being destroyed in the imagine or uh, being proud in the imagination of their hearts. Anyway, mm-hmm. to, to actually, I think we should see this as the the word imagination is describing the rest of Deuteronomy six. So all mm-hmm. all your heart, mind, and strength, and then when you sit down, when you stand up, blah blah blah. That is that this is what we're to be thinking about, contemplating, right, delighting in in the word of God and in his goodness all the time. And I think it's a call for sanctified imaginations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you want to really kind of press home to engage the imagination of your hearers on Christmas Eve? I don't know. You could, I mean, one other thing you could do, <laughs> this is a, this is an easy one to do with the kind of my, my cast stuff, right. To, to write a play for this. If you think about the characters, uh, if you take out Caesar Augustus, we've got Joseph, Mary, the people of Bethlehem, the shepherds and the angels, and even the people of Bethlehem. So if you just think about their response, right. So Joseph is long suffering, enduring is faithful. Mary is quiet, but she's pondering. 
the the shepherds and the angels seem to the same. They're both rejoicing and they're telling. Uh, the people of Bethlehem they reject the Messiah. I mean, they reject Mary, you know. And then, mm-hmm. but then when the shepherds tell them about this, they do wonder. And so, I think that uh, there is this idea of rejoicing and wondering and pondering. Uh, that I think I think we could embody that, and we could encourage people to do that. So mm-hmm. I guess that's it. To you know, to really again, kind of lean into the joy of this evening. Um, is there, there go. something that has uh, happened in our recent past that can get at that kind of surprise, uh, like rumor mill? Like, did you hear this is what happened? Um, oh but, yeah. Uh, you know, on the good side, because you had the, you know, the, you know, the twin towers coming down. That was the, it was a surprise. You know, no one was thinking anything like that could happen. Uh, and then, you know, the news reports and the the whispers, you kind of get that sense in Bethlehem on that night, especially as the the shepherds come to town. But do we have anything like that in terms of the good? Like, yeah. I never saw this coming. Um, I mean, the only thing I could think of is if you were a Trump supporter, the, the night that he won, <laughs> that was unexpected, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and how, you know, kind of wonderful for for those who supported him that was but um i i nothing in my recent history that i can think of that is kind of similar to that well i mean maybe maybe when a woman's pregnant and it's it's not public knowledge yet so i mean mm. maybe you get somehow you're in on the news before she's had a chance to tell her mother right Mm. And so you've got to keep quiet about this in a sense, because, you know, you don't want to blow the surprise for that. But you've got this. Eugene Bunkowski used to talk about gossiping the gospel. <laughs> um, and it sounds kind of awful, but I, we was, he was definitely, he, he didn't mean it in an awful way. What, what he meant was, it, why do we take such delight in telling bad stuff about people, right, in gossip? Like, I, I've got this juicy bit I can't wait to tell you you know, and it's evil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he wanted us to have, and I think God wants us to have, right, that same sort of excitement and joy and eagerness to tell people about Jesus. And this is, we, that's, I think that's sort of what you're talking about, right? Um, there is this, yeah. why don't we have an indictment against us? But yeah, the only thing I can really think of, like I say, is maybe, you know, I, I know that, um, Whatever I I know because I'm the pastor that this woman's pregnant, but it's not really for public distribution yet. So I have to be a little bit quiet. I have to be quiet about it. But I am going to tell Jackie because uh, if I don't, I'm going to get in big trouble. So you know, <laughs> so I am going to tell Jackie. I'm going to swear her to secrecy, right? Uh, and so that telling of her feels like that a little bit. Okay. That's probably the closest. I it's, I don't know. That's a very kind of, you know, that's not big news in the, for the whole world. But, I mean, it can be. I, I mean, not for the whole world, but it can be, you know, if you've got particularly women who have struggled to conceive uh, who, mm-hmm. or who have lost children, and then you have this good news about it, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, un- it feels like we don't have enough of those. Un- unfortunately, I have a lot more a lot more the other direction. I mean, there's, sure. it is a, kind of a sadly astounding that there's almost no one who is untouched mm. 
people are often very quiet. I mean, some people aren't quiet about it at all, but um, um, there's almost nobody that's untouched by, by miscarriages um, mm-hmm. and hasn't experienced that, you know, and the kind of sadness that people are carrying around with that, you know, kind of suffering silently is, so it's, it's a pretty common yeah. right, reality in, in this life. So there's a lot of people hurting from that. So I think that's all the more reason to actually rejoice in these conceptions and mm-hmm. there's a kind of risk, you know, sometimes, in fact, one of the reasons people will often be kind of secretive about it is because they're afraid that they might they might lose the child and then they don't want to have to face the, the people when that happens. But I actually think that's all the more reason to rejoice and to celebrate. A conception is still a conception. Yeah. You know, God has given life. And if he chooses to take this life where the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But we're going to believe and confess that he's good and that we'll see this child, we'll meet this child, you know, outside mm-hmm. of the womb in heaven and, you know, so forth. And, and you know, that, yeah, I, I mean, it's easy to say when you're not the yeah. one in the very thick of it. I'm not dictating to people how they have to behave or respond. But anyway, you know, yeah. I, I would like our people to share with us these things Actually, partially because in case there is a tragedy, that we can we can share that with them also, that we yeah. can mourn with them and support them in that. So, I don't know how we got into that. Oh, we're trying yeah. to think of good things to gossip about. Yeah. <laughs> any uh, any final thoughts? Any last um, uh, bits of advice? Hmm. Well, the the big advice I think on these big days when it comes to preaching is to not to not get overwhelmed by the event i mean to not to not allow the kind of pressure of the event to overwhelm you but just to do your job simply and competently uh, don't mm-hmm. try to be profound don't don't cave into the pressure right it's all you all you have to do on christmas eve is tell the people about Jesus being born to be the savior of the world and a little bit about what that means. You, you don't have to blow them away with a great sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the yeah. kind of pressure there, you know, the stress that we can put upon ourselves is, is very detrimental. And in fact, I think it's demonic. Mm-hmm. So don't, yeah. don't let them have his way. Just be confident in simplicity and don't try to, don't try to have some great theological insight and clever sermon. Just, Follow, be like Walther. Yeah. Don't cut your hair that way, but be like Walther. <laughs> good, good. Well, uh, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll pick up with uh, probably Christmas morning. Sounds good. Sounds good.